and welcome to Pornography as I See It. This is Dr. Kevin Skinner on the line, Dr. Shondell Knowlton and Dr. Jill Manning. How are we doing today? Good morning. <laughs> Hello. How are things going today? Great. Wonderful. Wonderful. It's great to be back. Well, great to ha- great to have you guys. Uh, you know, this is class two of uh, pornography as I see it, and in particular, we're helping uh, women and individuals who are struggling uh, to deal with their partner's uh, sexual addiction and pornography addiction. And uh, wanted to welcome you to our class today. How are you guys doing? Life treating you good? It's well. How about very you? Well. <laughs> very well. I had a baby pug that uh, has kept life interesting the last week or so. <laughs> Learning new things. I once had a friend who said, "If you have a puppy, it's like having twins." <laughs> <laughs> and they don't take diapers. So. And, and yes, and having tw- having twins, I, I can I can actually probably relate with that a little bit. <laughs> All right, that, you know, one of the things that uh, we talked about in the first class is we talked a little bit about the post traumatic uh, relationship the, or post traumatic stress disorder and how that's influencing the relationship. And one of the things that we looked at in particular was some of the common traumatic responses that occur when a person discovers their sexual addiction or their partner's sexual addiction. And do you guys have any other uh, comments? on that before we head into today's topic? Uh, not that I came across. I'm good with it. I'm good with what we, with what we did. I, I thought last, the last discussion was a very well-rounded one. I just, you know, in the last couple of weeks, meeting with more women dealing with this, is I'm just struck again really how deep and extensive that hurt can be. And I think it's important for anyone that's in relationship to or caring for someone dealing with that to be mindful of how how traumatic it can be. You know, and one of the things that we have just created, this new assessment that is really to help the uh, individuals who are trying to respond to their partner's sexual addiction or pornography addiction, to get them basically assessing them in these different types of trauma and, and to give them some specific feedback. Next, uh, so basically some of the goals for today, and I just kind of want to outline this and then we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, first of all, we're talking about taking the right stand. Because as a therapist, I, I don't know about uh, you, Dr. Knowlton and, and uh, Dr. Manning, but it seems to me that many of the people that I come in contact with, they have absolutely no idea how to respond to this. Has that been your experience as well? well? There's no pattern for this. This is nothing. Part of the reason that the situation is so traumatic is because that you don't expect it will happen. And so there isn't a pattern. There isn't a plan that's in place. So you have to kind of feel your way through this and figure out, what your next move is going to be, and you're so aroused at the time you're trying to do that, physiologically aroused, that it's hard to have your head about you. So anything you can do to take a minute and have a plan or have somebody advising you and standing by you while you go through this is extremely helpful. I think, too, unlike something like a, a parenting problem, you know, where you can turn to previous generations of women and, and glean from so much wisdom and literature and ideas that's out there. This is a, a generation of women that's charting whole new territory. The Internet's relatively new. We've never had a society that's so saturated with pornography and compulsive sexual behavior. This is a brand new phenomenon. Pornography's not new, but the way this is impacting us is new. And these aren't women that can turn to their mothers, sisters, other people for immediate help or counselor ideas of how to go about this. So this really is women dealing with a brand new type of problem and with very little resource and connection to get insight. And, and it's just so traumatic that it really is a, a perfect storm, if you will, of crisis. 
and all culminating at basically at the same time because you know with the you know real realistically the internet's what maybe maybe 15 years old maybe not quite and and in conjunction with that it's never been so accessible and so easily just anyone can get it anywhere and part of the problem is there are so many good people who are getting caught into this children young adults and adults that what we're experiencing today is is just how do we respond to this how i mean we got the person who's struggling with it but also the spouse or the significant other who does has no idea of, okay, now what, what do I do? And as a therapist, it was interesting to me. I just had a situation where somebody came in and they were saying, you know, I, I've been talking with different people about my challenges. And it, it was actually kind of a foreign idea to me because a lot of them haven't known where to turn, but this lady knew how to reach out to people. And she had actually began the healing process and doing so much so more rapidly than other individuals who have no idea where to turn to. Yes. That's been my experience. When they actually are comfortable talking about it, they begin that, that, that healing process more quickly or rapidly. One of the problems with it, too, though, is that the problem being so prevalent is new enough that they, a lot of the help that's out there is addressed to the addict or the offender and not to the spouse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's hard to find people who know what to do and know what to deal with from the spouse's point of view because of the newness of the problem, like Dr. Manning was speaking of earlier. Well, and to even women that with any other type of problem would be very resourceful and well-connected socially to reach out and get help. I know in some of the research I've done that even those women that are very well connected and tuned in tend to isolate themselves when they find out about this problem. So even if people are close to their family and friends and have good resources in their faith community, even those people are at risk for becoming very withdrawn and isolated because they fear the whiplash against their husband and their family as a whole. So trying to find who they can talk to that's safe, that will understand this issue is really challenging. That's been my experience too. Um, with almost every client, almost every client that I've worked with in this situation. And often you don't know who is safe. And if you reach out and you get bitten um, or get very judgmental or very directed in what to do in a certain way, it's not helpful to reach out again. Or it seems like you're afraid to reach out again. And, you know, what's interesting about this is I think that many individuals, when they get started in the process and they've just discovered it, not only are they, as we we talked about in the first class, they're they're in such a traumatic state themselves that it's not uncommon for people to have a fear of reaching out because they're afraid of being judged or criticized. And many times I find that they feel guilty themselves what did I do wrong? They feel some shame. You know, there's something wrong with our family now. And I don't want to put this, you know, make everybody think that we've got all of these huge problems. And so one of the reasons why they isolate themselves is because they feel like other people are automatically judging them. Well, and, and along those lines, most women that I've worked with blame themselves for this problem initially. They take a lot of it on themselves, and and we can talk about that later, about some boundary setting around that, but they really, you know, it really attacks the soul of a woman, thinking, you know, if I'd been prettier, if I'd been more sexually available, or a better wife, or this and that. They really own it, and so that makes it hard to reach out as well, because they feel like people will also reinforce that idea that, yeah, well, if you'd been a better wife, then your husband wouldn't have turned to porn. And it's just really a very isolating situation. You know, I I prepare clients to hear that because inevitably along the line, they will hear some of that. Well, what did you do? Mm -hmm. 
you must have been withholding sex. If you would have been, if you would have been different, inevitably somewhere they are going to hear that. Or it takes two. When this happens in a marriage, something is horribly wrong with the marriage, and they get that. They will get that message. So it's important to prepare for that and have your story set, your beliefs set, so that at least. When that hits you, you can refer back to a belief that this is an addiction. It happens to many good men. There are many beautiful women it has happened to. And and have a story set in your mind because inevitably that will be confronted. And, and will need to well, be. Well, my experience has been too. You know, I, I look at my clientele. These are very sharp, on-the-ball, attractive women. And what I have found, just a theme, is if we keep in mind that many of these men have brought this problem into the marriage and the wives didn't know about it. These men are also seeking out attractive women to marry that are sexually available. So it's been the very minority of situations where a woman has not enjoyed sex and that's been a part of the relationship that's been a source of contention all along. My experience has been clients that are dealing with this often really enjoy sex, are sexually available, and that has fueled this whole situation for the men because when you're sexually addicted, just like if you're food addicted, there's never going to be enough that fantasy-based lust. Very, very good point. You know, one of the things I'd just like to quickly outline is some of the goals that we're trying to accomplish today. And I think we've already started on the first one is assessing the situation. I think many times we get into a situation, we don't know how to respond. And I, one of the best things that we can teach our clients, in my experience, is to sit back and assess what's really going on. And just as you were both talking about, we really have to assess what is the history here? How long has this individual been involved with pornography or their sexual misbehaviors? And if we don't go back into the background in the past, we can we will oftentimes just put it upon ourselves. What am I doing wrong? Rather than realizing that the average child starts looking at pornography at age 11 today, you know, and many of the people that I've worked with or that are dealing with the sexual addiction started in their teen years. That has nothing to do with the current relationship. That has to do with a whole history of addiction building up over time. Any thoughts? <laughs> well, I, I, I echo it. <laughs> yeah. I was listening saying yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Okay, so so first the first part I guess I would say is you know we need to assess their help them assess their situation. What are they really dealing with? What is the history of their partner? And sometimes I think that's you a, know go ahead as we start to move forward with this too. Once they've assessed their own level of trauma and and decided where they are and where they need to work from, their partner's behavior is going to become increasingly important as we travel down this road. Right. So. A lot of assessing this depends on what the partner is willing to share with them at this point and what they are able to find out and how openly they are able to communicate with their spouse from this point. However, it's also information that's helpful if the spouse will not communicate about this. So I hope spouses listen too and understand that if this is what's going on in their marriage, if this has been an issue in their marriage, that from this point forward, they're an active part of participation in how this works out. I think it's important too to normalize some of the initial responses to this trauma. You know, once the bomb is hit, there's Mm -hmm. things that women will commonly do. For example, I've noticed in my work that women will become hypervigilant, 
almost like porn detectives and police, trying to seek out as much information as they can because they feel duped. They're in a state of shock that they've missed this all along, and so they don't want it to happen again. So they, in a spirit of trying to find out more and more so that they have the whole picture, as well as trying to control it, trying to micromanage it and stop it, which is an understandable feeling. It's, it's something that's hurt our marriage that badly. Of course we want it to stop. As well, women can become either overly sexually active or stop being sexually active with their partners. So I noticed one of two responses. They either try to compete with these images sexually to stop it or are just so hurt and don't feel safe enough to be intimate with their partners. And so those are just some of the responses that I, I'd like to normalize, that they're very common, if not expected, in, in most cases. You know, and my experience in that has been sometimes it, it's contingent upon how the partner responds. The person who's dealing, you know, struggling with a sexual addiction or a pornography addiction, one of the things that we have to an- help them analyze is how are they responding? Because if their partner is willing to open up and talk about it and be accountable and begin to take measures in their own healing process, yeah, I think that really helps the partner. Definitely. But if their partner shut down or angry, and in many situations I've seen where they actually begin to blame and shame their partner and say, well, I wouldn't have done this if you wouldn't have done that. And now we're talking about a totally different dynamic where the healing process has really been set back because of the blame and the consistent putting down or barraging of your of the spouse who has been unaware of this addiction. Well, and it's hard, it's hard too because most of these men are very shame-based and it's very difficult, if not impossible initially, for them to lean into someone else's pain because their sense of self is so fragile to begin with. And because confident, really centered men and women don't turn to porn. There's something going on that they turn to that for. And so women need to understand that although it's so understandable for their partner to validate those feelings of shock and hurt, it's going to be very difficult for most men to do that because of the type of personality that gets into this problem in the beginning. So just a quick question to both of you then. Just say, for example, that somebody has just discovered their partner's online sexual behavior or sexual deviant behavior outside of the relationship. Where, where should they respond? How, how initially should they respond to that experience, kind of as, if you, as you've just been talking about? What is the best way to initially respond to that? What would be the most healthy way, would you suggest? Whatever keeps them alive and okay. <laughs> Um, I don't want, I would be concerned about women feeling like there's an absolutely right way and wrong way. There are more productive ways, possibly, but to have a right and a wrong way, they're already blaming themselves. So whatever our listeners have done is okay, and we can work through that point. Um, Ideally, I think you would give yourself some time to breathe and try and engage, really, truly, maybe be silent for a while, and give yourself plenty of space physically, emotionally, to think about this and to be with it for a minute, because you're physically, physiologically, you are so aroused that um, your cerebral cortex, which is the front part of your brain, the part that makes us make good judgments shuts down. So initially, the more time, space, if you can give yourself some room to function, then you can thoughtfully approach the situation. Otherwise, you can become like a wounded animal. Ready for battle. Yeah. Well, and I think it's helpful. One thing that I recommend to women, and, and I really like what you said, Shondell, about not thinking there's just one right way or wrong way to handle this. One thing that I recommend though, and this can happen in a variety of forms, is to take some time to find out good information, accurate information about this problem. 
I know that it seems like if you're living with it, it feels like you know everything there is to know about it and more than you ever wish you did. But it can be helpful to get your hands on a good book, Dealing with Sexual Addictions, you know, one, Out of the Shadows by Patrick Carnes or Facing the Shadow or Living with Your Husband's Secret Wars. There's many good books out there that can just give you some good objective information that helps you depersonalize it and helps understand, okay, what it is that you are dealing with. And I think women that I've found that have been able to do that have just been able to have a quieter mind as they clarify decisions and what to do and where to go next. And to build on that, uh, one of the things that they can do is they can attend groups for women like Essanon groups, which would be, you know, partners of sexual addicts. If you go to a group like that, or if I know, no, Jill, you guys run groups uh, with the START Network uh, specifically to help the men and the women who are in the recovery process. And I think groups such as yours are so valuable for it to almost be normalized. And, you know, there are other people struggling with this. It's not just me. There's a, there's other people who are dealing with this. And here other people's stories can be very, very healing uh, or at least helpful in the healing process. And another, another thing that that does is puts you in touch with those women with real faces, real lives that are also doing this. Um, I tell my clients, well, you've become part of a club of wonderful women that this has happened to. And they get to know those women personally, and they can say, I am part of this. And if this could happen to her, I understand that maybe it's not so personal, and maybe it's not about me. That group dynamic can be very helpful, even in... um, even before they started attending a group. So part of what we're saying here is, first of all, get more information and more knowledge. Read books. Uh, get the accurate information of people who've studied about sexual addiction so you don't internalize it and make it so much about yourself. Yes. And then the right. second part is reaching out, attending groups. And, and, you know, a lot of women have told me that that's really a hard thing for them to begin doing because they, they just think, oh, man, just another thing I have to do. But in reality, it's been my experience that those who actually go come back and say, man, I am so glad I went because I realized that this isn't me. This is, there's a whole lot of other people who are dealing with this. And I, I'm starting to understand more about sexual addiction rather than personalizing it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think too, when something like this happens to us and it's because of someone else's choices that we're, we've been hurt so badly, it's common to feel like a victim. I mean, because we haven't directly caused the problem that we're so traumatized by. But I think I'd really want to emphasize to women out there that even though that feeling is so strong and this has happened to you, you will always have choices. You will always be able to, with some help perhaps, identify what your choices are. You are not trapped or stuck in having to, you know, deal with this behavior on your own. That's a really good point. And one of the boundaries, as we're talking about that, that I like to help help my clients set are boundaries of accountability. So at this point, during the crisis stage, I'm not so concerned about setting boundaries for a partner. We will get to that. That will automatically come. But setting personal boundaries about your own behavior, because these women already feel bad enough. Now, if they act out and behave in ways that they're not proud of or that they're ashamed of later, then they have a deeper hole to dig themselves out of. And they have more blame put on the offending spouse. You know, and one of the things that I've seen, and I'm sure that you have seen, is in that initial crisis stage, it is so common for women to become, as you've talked about already, so so hyper-aroused in terms of the, just the physiologically, the anger, the anxiety, the tension, to throw things, to break things, to hit, to punch, to, to do a whole lot of those things that as they look back on it, they say, oh, I can't believe I did that. But in reality, I think we almost need to normalize some of that response and saying, it's like you've just experienced 
such a traumatic event that you have your mind has had no idea of how to respond. Exactly. You haven't been there's no preconditioning for this. It it happens. And and if we can help people understand that there is a way to heal through that rather than initially that response makes sense, but there's a time where that anger actually become can become addictive to the person who's struggling with their partner's addiction. Well, and along those lines, I encountered two women who in response to this problem went out and had revenge affairs. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up, Jill. Right. And it's interesting because as I've continued working with these women, and they will now state that the biggest problem is not anger at their spouse, but anger at themselves for how they responded to that in their own sexual acting out in response to this. And so I think that idea of setting some boundaries and limits for ourselves to make sure that we stay safe, that we behave in a way that as much as we can is in line with our values and what's important to us and doesn't cause more harm than what's already been caused. And and one thing I would like to highlight with that, Jill, just real quick, is this. Many of these women, it's not their characteristic. It's totally out of character. It's not a part of who they are, Mm -hmm. but, but out of revenge that occurs. And and then their partner blames them and says, right. well, see, you're just like I am. When we're talking really an apples and oranges conversation here, you know, the female may have had a single affair and it's not a part of the characteristics, whereas her spouse, it's been years and years and years of building. Mm-hmm. And, right. And, and that's a it's, totally it's different. It's absolutely critical during this time that as close as possible, now you're going to respond and you're going to wish you hadn't done or said something. That's no, that is normal. But as close as possible, do not change any of your long-held moral values right now. If you decide you can need to pick them up or, or re-examine them at a future time, that's one thing. But now is not the time to do that. Um, I've had women and clients that I've worked with who have started drinking when before they right. they never did that or started looking at porn themselves and they can become addicted too. This is not a time, even if you question those values, give yourself some time before you do any moral (laughs) value changing things. And I think we need to mention suicidality as well because there's been several women that I've met that have considered suicide, attempted suicide, or really struggle with those feelings because they just feel in such a dark place and hopeless and trapped that there's nothing they can do and that this is their fault and life's not worth living if this is going to happen. And that's very serious and it's important that those women reach out to professional therapist or doctor that can help make sure they're safe. And uh, it's not uncommon for that to happen. And I, I really like, you know, what we're saying, that, but initially just to keep ourselves safe and grounded and respond as much as we can in a way that won't violate our sense of self and integrity. You know, and many times women stop eating. They stop doing the things that they have normally done to stay healthy. Mm-hmm. And in particular at a time, this is probably the most critical time to keep the normal things that you try to do as as close to possible, as close to the way they were as possible. Eating healthy foods, trying to maintain some type of simplicity in your life. And sometimes I think you have to get rid of things uh, that, Shondell, you've actually talked with me about this in the past, is try to keep their life simplified as much as possible rather than to complicate it with all these other tasks that you're trying to run about and do. Yeah, one of the things, this takes a lot of mental energy. Even if you're just sitting there thinking about it, you'll be exhausted at the end of the day. So I ask clients to simplify wherever they can. If you can get a substitute to take care of commitments for a while, go get a stack of paper plates and paper cups. 
Do easy meals. Make this make your life as simple as possible for a while because your brain is under assault. And learning to say no is completely appropriate. Learning to say, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't do that right now. Realizing fully that this is a time frame that you're going through where you have to he- begin healing the inner self first. You know, one of the challenges with all of this that I've come across is that when someone's really blaming themselves for a problem, there's such a strong desire to compensate by saying yes, by taking things on that they can, you know, see some confirmation or validation that, oh, I'm okay. And so it it can be counterintuitive to say no and simplify and realize that with or without this problem, your value as a person has not changed and that permission to say no and to simplify is there because saying no is is a very hard thing to do, especially with many Christian women that I encountered. That's not something they're raised with or, or do even before this problem came along. So now that things have really hit the fan, it may be even harder to do that, but it's it's so necessary. I think that's I part of I talked about this with my clients um, along those same lines, Jill, but it's like you've carefully arranged this apple cart and the image of your life and everything looks shiny and beautiful and everything's stacked up nice and then it gets tipped over and there's all the pieces of your life are all over the road and you're embarrassed and you're scrambling to try and pick them up and, and some of them are bruised and battered and you don't want back and others, even though they're beautiful, you don't want to put back on the cart. This is a great time. The advantage of this, and we're probably getting ahead of ourselves here, but the advantage of this is that you work your way through this, you decide, you get to make choices about what your life looks like from here on out, even though you didn't choose this event. And now is a good time to reassess and start thinking about what do I want it to look like because I'm going to decide how to put this back together. Your life in particular, I assume that's what you're referring to because many times I talk with these women and my experience with them has been they don't really know who they are at this point. Their life has been, as you say, the, the apple cart turnover, their, their life has been thrown in into this whole disarray of now what do I do? Where do I go? Who should I talk to? Who should I not talk to? Is this yeah. safe? Is this not safe? I would suggest that we really need to get them to step back and realize, you know what, you can still be in charge of your life. We can't change your partner right now. You're going to have to step back and analyze. Are they willing to change? Are they willing to look at their own behavior? Or are they still maintaining secrets? Are they hiding things? And are they participating in the recovery? Or are they expecting you to do the work for them? I, and I've experienced that where you set up my appointments, you do this for me, you, and they really aren't, you know, they, they're still maintaining their partner's lifestyle by being so overly involved. One of the boundaries that I think it's really important for women to have, and this can be personalized and adjusted to their own situation, one of the boundaries that I believe needs to happen is their spouse at this point has to have accountability to do something. I believe that there needs to be a demand made on a spouse that's workable and doable, even in the early stages, that they become accountable for. That can be as simple as, I know that I've hurt you. What can I do for you today? And it's up to the spouse to follow through with this. That helps to establish some kind of safety and some kind of involvement. If the spouse is not willing to do that, then you have to be able to do it for yourself. You know, and the language I use with my clients on that is, what do you expect your partner to do in this process? And because if you don't let him know, there's 
there's no way that he's going to, you know, change specifically. So you need to be able to say, you know, if you're going, if we're going to work on this marriage, if we're going to try to save this, I need you to do the following things, whether that be set up uh, your own treatment program, contact your counselor, start reading books, being accountable, come and talking to me and let me know how you're doing on a regular basis. Whatever that is, that expectation is, these are the things I need to feel valued by you. In other words, put them in the response of saying, what are you going to do now? Because I can't do all the work. I can't carry this load. This is not something that I need to, that's not me that can change this. And in general, I think we want to back up for just a bit and talk about making the individual okay and do the relationship a little bit later. Yeah, but but I think but, in the beginning, there has to be something established, some type of a boundary established to say, this is what I expect. If right. we're, we're going to try to work on this marriage and try to put it back together. Now, sometimes that's not possible because you just don't want to. And I, I totally acknowledge that. There are times when it's been too much and it's appropriate to say, I'm not sure this marriage is going to work out. And that's part of this crisis decision is that for women or for the spouse, doesn't have to be made right this second. You don't close your options by taking a breath. I like to tell spouses, when something like this has happened, if you want to redeem it, you have a ticket out. But you can also put it in your drawer and leave it to see if you can then choose to stay in. And I think that that's a very good point. We don't want to rush to decisions, but we do want to say, I don't know for sure what's going to happen. Because I think that's a very fair response. I've actually met with people after months and months of months of meeting periodically. One of the spouses decided, you know what, this just isn't going to work. Because the behaviors, they continued. And they realized that as much as I try, it just can't work for us as a couple. Whereas right. other, whereas other couples, it's exactly the opposite. And they work together and they learn how to mesh and they learn how to bo- literally both forgive. It's an empowering thing for a spouse to be able to say, I have a choice in this, but I'm not going to choose yet. And there's one other more very powerful part, and it's a statement that we often use, and it's called the want principle. You know, I want this marriage to work out with you. I genuinely do, but I can't make that commitment right now until I have more data. Mm -hmm. The validating is the want. I want this to work. But it's also being truthful and saying, I don't have enough information yet. Oh, I like that. And I think that's a really empowering stance because my experience has been very often people will make premature compromises in an effort to try to get life back to normal. They're just so wanting to kind of get rid of the pain and fix it that they'll prematurely commit to or promise things that may or may not be the best route. And so I really like that, that permission to... You know, I may want this, but I need some time to really assess and evaluate my choices. And that way there are actually are choices because far too often I've heard people say, well, I forgive you. And yes. what does forgiveness mean in a sense? Do you, you forgive them the behavior? You've forgiven the fact that they've hurt you? And, and I think that's what, uh, what Janice Abrams Spring calls the cheap forgiveness. Exactly. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up, Kevin. Yes. <laughs> Well, and which leads actually to resentment and rage and all kinds of difficulties in the relationship down the road because it doesn't work. This process and getting through this process, if you've been traumatized, is not for the faint of heart. Right. And it's a long, it's a long road. Relationship. Yeah. Yeah. It's a long road. And, And I agree that one of those premature compromises or commitments is to forgive because there may be a religious uh, sense of duty to do that. Well, if, if I'm a good person and a decent person, then I forgive my spouse and try to forget it. Well, uh, it, part of that's impossible to do. And the forgiveness, if we really want that to have the full power and medicine 
which I believe it can, that takes time. That takes a clarity and honesty that perhaps we've never had before in our lives of really understanding what it is that's happened and what it is exactly that we're forgiving. And there may be parts of that that we feel able to forgive sooner than others. I think we see forgiveness as an all-or-nothing proposal. There may be 5% of this that we could forgive, and the 95% is going to take time. Or there may be 30 and then 60. There may be part of this that in this life we may never get to, and that's all okay. And, And one thing I want to emphasize is everybody will have a different threshold and limit with what they can handle and what they're able to do. And it's so important not to judge ourselves or other women of well, you know, she divorced him. Oh, that was an awful decision. <laughs> Who could leave their husband kind of thing? Or why is she staying? It's just like parenting and mothering. There's some women that really thrive with six children. There's some that thrive with one. There's some that thrive with none. Everybody has a different threshold and set of capabilities and talents and strengths. And it's important that we appreciate all of those because they're all great. And an important part of that is the judgment of another person does no good. And and far too many times I've seen people in religious settings judge and say, well, they are not forgiving this person. Uh, Recently, we were attending a meeting, I think you were there, uh, uh, Jill, uh, where uh, an ecclesiastical leader stood up and said, I can't, you know, the spouse won't forgive her partner, you know, and it's been almost nine months now. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Do you you remember that that experience? And and we and we laugh, but but there's there's a perception out there that it has mm. to happen right now. That you have to forgive, and if you're not a forgiving person, and now we're just putting more hurt into the person who's trying to figure out how to make sense of this. Exactly. And but what I want to say is, the person who is struggling with their spouse's addiction, not only can they heal once they realize that they are an incredible person, they're a person of infinite worth and value. See, I think one of the things that's lost when people take a stand is they stop, they don't realize how good they are as an individual. And I, I try to get that across to the women who are struggling with this. Regardless of what your partner has done, you are a person of infinite worth and value. You are an amazing person who can continue to bless many people's lives. Now, whether your spouse chooses to change or not, your right stand is to realize that you're a person of value and you deserve to be treated as such. And I try to instill that in, into the women's lives that I work with because if they can understand that very simple concept, creating personal boundaries becomes much easier and relationship boundaries is a byproduct. And staying in the relationship or not staying in the relationship doesn't change that. Right. right. Whether the, in whether no they way does go. that change that. And your spouse is a person of infinite value, too. But that doesn't mean you can stay in a relationship and accept these kinds of behaviors indefinitely. One of the things that I hear from clients is, I could get through this if I knew it wasn't going to happen again. Mm-hmm. It would be so much easier to forgive this and to work this out. But it's that uncertainty. So I think they need to look for boundaries around that, things that are reassuring. I have some spouses that have been willing to come home every day and say, I had a perfect day, or I struggled with looking at things I shouldn't do, so I went for a walk during lunch, who are willing to report. But um, part of the boundary is you can't continue to hurt me like this. And that is assessing the partner, how they're, how they're willing to take accountability or not. Because if a partner is not willing to take accountability and talk about that, you can't really, you cannot begin the healing process yet, at least if you're going to stay in the relationship. The individual can begin her healing process, but the relationship can't begin healing unless that occurs. Unless that is going to happen. You know, right. I have a, 
I have a great story with that. I, I was working with this couple and, and I told them that there needed to be some type of accountability set up. So he put a rubber band on his wrist and every time he was tempted to, to look at pornography online, he would, he would just pluck himself with the rubber band. And at the end of the day, actually in the morning, he would get up and say, I am not going to look at pornography today. At the end of the day, he would tell, report to her how many times he had plucked himself. Now they just did this for a month or two, but it got them into such a pattern of, of dialogue that it was, it was helpful to her because she knew that he was going to be accountable. It was really interesting just to see, they created this all on their own. And I don't know if it would work for all couples, but it was fun to see them work through it together that way. And he was so willing to talk through it because he really wanted it out of his life. You know, and on the flip side of that, Kevin, I've worked with couples where more information around the temptation or what's going on for him every day was just too painful. It just really added to the stress for her. And so I've worked with women that just wanted the receipt for therapy sessions put on the dresser and so that she could just see that he was being accountable to someone and was getting help, that she didn't, she was in a place where she didn't need or want any further detail because it was, it was just making things worse for her. So there's there's no one right way of putting accountability and boundaries in place. Everybody's different. And each situation with the acting out is different. I mean, when you have a situation with strip clubs and prostitutes, affairs, pornography, every situation is going to be very different in the history of it. And that will call on different boundaries and different measures. That is such a valid point. I oftentimes, when I, as a clinician, when I sit down with these, my clients and if they're both in the session together, I ask them that question. How much do you want to know? How much do you want to participate in this? And, and look to partners that you owe it to her in this situation to be consistent with what she's requesting here. Yeah, uh, that's a great boundary. That's one that I would think that we need to emphasize is that she dictates what she needs to know and what she doesn't need to know and then help them to not become obsessed with the details. We're getting too many details because the more that you have, the more images. You know, and that brings up a question I received from, from women. And here's the question. I want to participate in my partner's recovery, but not be too involved. What would you recommend? One of the things that I do in situations like that is invite the spouse into the sessions with the addictive spouse on an occasional basis and set that session up to be a review of where we're going, where we've come, what we're working on. So so they can actually get a report and get to hear what you're And gear it towards the spouse. And so one of the problems that I find sometimes is that this behavior has been so secretive that the therapy secretive that the therapy sessions for the addicted spouse. You know, some therapists that actually insist on meeting with a couple together just for that reason to make sure that they're, that they're a part well, of the system. Well, at least if that option is open. So one of the things you'd say is to get involved in the therapy. So this isn't just the person who's who's going to the counselor once a week or twice a week, but also bring in the spouse to make sure that they know what's going on. Right. And as part of systems Well, and that thinkers, can happen too with, you know, if a woman requests to attend some of the ecclesiastical meetings her husband's attending to, that may be a nice in-between where it's not as much detail as a therapy session and typically not as long, but she's involved and aware and can witness him being accountable to someone. You know, one of the advantages of the Lifestar groups that we're running for couples is that the first six weeks is educational. And so she comes and she can participate, but there's not a lot of disclosure. And so I find the women really benefit from listening and learning about this whole process without having to say a lot and do a lot. And in the process there, they're getting education. 
It goes back right. to what we were talking about earlier. You really need to be able to assess the situation and, and really get a depth of understanding of what this is all about. It's like getting an illness. And if you really had an illness, diabetes or whatever, the first thing you do is go read about it and learn about maybe the best type of treatment. Well, far too often we go into this crisis mode and we stop gathering information where right now it's the most important thing to do is gather as much information to learn how to respond. And, and sometimes we go overboard on that, but... Kevin, yeah. um, I would like to I would like to talk for just a second, if we could, about the specific things that spouses can do as soon as they know this is a crisis. What can they ask for? Because one of the most common things I hear women in my office, what can I demand? Well, you can demand what you need to have. Doesn't mean you'll get it. But there are some specific things that can be done. For instance, the couple can decide or the wife can request, demand, I don't know the right word to use for sure, but that there are no more overnight out-of-town trips for a period of time. Absolutely. Or she can demand that we change and put a password on our account with the computer or the DISH network. Yep. Or I, I even had a client in my office this week who said to me, I thought this was astounding, if I could know what part of my brain this addiction came from, I would tear it out of my head. Hmm. He handed me his phone and said, I have learned to pick up pornography on my telephone. Would you please enter a code? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, and you know what? In my programming so that I can't change it. But I think it's in a spouse's realm to say, these are the things that must happen. You know, and what's interesting about that, the language of must and demand, some people say, well, isn't that too strong? Well, in this situation, taking the right stand may require you to be strong and say, this is what I expect because I love you and I love this relationship, but I can't continue on with these current things happening. Can't do it. Right. These are deal breakers. Right. Well, one one thing that I encourage women to do is to really do an inventory before you start identifying which boundaries you feel yes. you need, I think it's yes. important to do an inventory of what parts of your life feel most violated. Where's the most anger? Where's the most hurt? And use those feelings as a guide to show where in life there needs to be some boundaries put in place. So, for instance, if finances is the real source of mistrust around this. I had one woman who found out there was a $40,000 debt due to phone sex. And so money was where she, with credit cards and online banking, that's where her biggest source of mistrust and anger lay. So it would make sense for her to put in place some boundaries around money and financial transactions. And say these must happen. Right, where, you know, I'm now in charge of managing the money, right? you know, or there'll be changes in the cards or numbers or passwords. For another person, it may be business travel. If he's been visiting prostitutes or going watching pornographic films on business trips, that may be a source where she feels, you know what, this is where I have a lot of angst and anger and upset, and that's where I need to put some boundaries. So I just want to emphasize using feelings in productive ways can be identifying which parts of your life feel most hurt. It may be sexuality. You know, engaging sexually with your husband may be the the place in your life that feels the most hurt and unsafe. Okay, that's going to be a good indicator that that's a place where some boundaries could be used. And so I, I just think that's part of the process that some people, you know, are not aware of. And part of that is assessing where the pain is. One of the ideas that needs to be in place, so one of the boundaries that people should have is 
and are required is if there's been live, what I call live participation in pornography, if there's been prostitution, if there's been affairs, is a test for STDs. Mm-hmm, definitely. And that is something that women in this situation absolutely need to require of both their spouse and probably go do for themselves. For safety. Yep. You know, and, and as you talk about all these things, it's so critical, I think, for, for everybody listening to understand. The stronger you become, and I'm not str- talking stronger where you, you're overly critical or cruel or mean. I'm talking the stronger you feel inside. The more you can expect and you will expect because you're valuing yourself. And I can't emphasize that enough. I really believe that the stronger the women get in terms of internally realizing that they are people who can stand up and say, I am a person of worth and I deserve this. Then it's a matter of when they take a stand and saying, no, I want to help, but I don't want to be too involved. If you want me to change the password, I'm more than willing to do that. And as a therapist, I oftentimes will invite couples in and say, okay, where is the most likely place if you're going to relapse? I'll say to the person who's struggling with addiction, if you're going to relapse, what is the most frequent place that that would occur? And then get him to make a commitment to saying, this is the place where I've most often relapsed. His wife is now aware of it. Now let's talk about the solution and what needs to change. And that way she sees that we're dealing with it head on specifically. You know, an area that we haven't brought up yet that I think is a really tricky one as a therapist, I find this a challenge too, is that part of recovery from an addictive behavior is relapse and slips. And so if a woman is not aware of the recovery of an addictive cycle, she may say, you know, something like, if this happens one more time, I'm out, which I understand that line of thinking because this hurts so bad and it's inappropriate. So we can do this really tricky dance over where do we set limits around the behavior while understanding the nature of addictive recovery and being realistic about that process while at the same time not enabling and allowing it to continue. It's a really tricky dance and I don't have an answer. I don't know what the two of you would say. Well, it is because we can drive the addictive, we can drive the addicted spouse into hiding again, which is what she's most afraid of. And then she has to be the detective again, you know, and we're back in cycle. You know what? We're running out of time right now, but let's, oh. let's begin this in the next hour. We'll, we'll continue this conversation because I think it will be very valuable. We're going to take a brief break. We'll come back and begin the, end this conversation and begin Class 3, The Stages of Healing. We'll be right back in about five. 